let me begin by telling you a very awkward story about myself, um, a pathetic story, if you will. Um, so I'm from the country out by where Greeley and Fort Collins would intersect. So there, it's called Pierce, Colorado. And when you grow up in Pierce, Colorado, you learn how to drive when you're about 14, and you're very entitled, and you get a car when you're about 16. Even though it's a piece of crap, you get a car. And the reason is your parents are sick of driving you around. So you get a car so you can, you know, get a job, so you can contribute. So I had a car from 16, and I brought my car when I came to college in 95 um, here to Denver, and I was not used to driving in Denver. True story, I was driving on um, near Wash Park on Downing, going a little too fast and a little too close to the car in front of me. My dad doesn't believe this is true, but it's true. The wind blew my skirt up, and I was sitting next to a friend, a guy friend, and so I looked down to fix everything, and boom, hit the car in front of me. My dad totally doesn't believe that. It is totally true. I'm not lying. Um, but anyway, so the cops came, and they looked at my little, uh, it's called a Dodge Omni, which is a knockoff of a... Uh, Rabbit, VW Rabbit, it's like a little knockoff. And the cops were like, this is totaled. And I was like, yep. And I got my stuff out, and I walked and left the car there. Um, so for two years, I didn't have a car. Because when you wreck your car, you have to pay for another car. And cars are expensive when you work at Safeway on 6th. So I was working at Safeway on 6th, going to band practice on Pennsylvania, going to Corona Presbyterian. My world was a little box. I could walk everywhere. It was awesome. It was cool. It was downtown. It was the 90s, you know. It was hip. Um, but I started to notice that I was really taking a couple things for granted. Until when I had a car, I could go do what I wanted. I could go see my parents. I could go see my family. I have a ton of family in Greeley and Fort Collins. And all of a sudden, for two years, I didn't have a car. And what I missed the most coming from the countryside was that place where you can see the sky, the blue and the green the sky and the ground touch the horizon. You know, you go out there a little bit, a uh, little ways on Highway 85 or Highway I-25, and suddenly you just see everything when you're. And I was, I grew up in the country, so I started to feel really claustrophobic. So my friends, who were not really my friends because they made me pay, would accept, kindly accept twenty dollars to take me out there uh, to go visit my folks. But essentially, what I learned then is that I took it for granted having a car. Um, years have passed and passed and passed. Many years, folks, many years have passed. And now I have a car. I have a Honda Pilot, which is the perfect mom mobile. It has a third row. And when people say to me, uh, do you want to meet me for coffee? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, I live in Littleton. Where do you live? And I'm like, don't even ask. I have a car. I have a car. And people think that's weird. They're like, oh, you get all excited about having a car. It's like, yeah, I have a car. I can meet you somewhere. I know what it's like to not have a car. So essentially, I t don't take for granted having a car anymore. It's like this object of joy constantly because I know what it's like to not have a car. Um, so all that to say in one little line, thank you, metal band Cinderella. You don't know what you got till it's gone. All right. Um, today we're continuing in our story. Well, it's not story. In our sermon series on the book of Luke, which has been going on for quite a few months now. So the book of Luke, we are continuing on in chapter 11. And I am so sorry it is so warm. I would put on the uh, fan thing, but it is really loud and sounds like Hades. So we're not going to put that on. So we're going to have to just live. Um, using the New Living Translation, which will, there it is. Great. Okay, Luke 11, starting in verse 29. As the crowd pressed in on Jesus, 
He said, this evil generation keeps asking me to show them a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of Jonah. What happened to him was a sign to the people of Nineveh that God had sent him. What happens to the son of man will be a sign to these people that he was sent by God. The queen of Sheba will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. For she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now someone greater than Solomon is here, but you refuse to listen. The people of Nineveh will also stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. For they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. No one lights a lamp and then hides it or puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where its light can be seen by all who enter the house. Your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when it's bad, your body is filled with darkness. Make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness. If you are filled with light, with no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant, as though a floodlight were filling you with light. All right, would you pray with me before I begin? Lord, please um, be with all of us, Father God. Help it to make sense. Help us to take from this something that will be effective and beneficial for life and that would honor you. If there's anything you want me to add to my notes, go for it. If there's anything you want to take out or have me expound more on, go for it too. I love you. Amen. All right. So we have to do some background because even when I read this, I was like, oh, gee, what? (laughs) There's a lot going on there. And it's not um, very easy to understand unless you have a lot of context for the Bible. So we've been studying in Luke. There's a lot of things and a lot of times where you see a sharp contrast between two types of people groups. And we are basically told or could assume that we're told, emulate this group of people and learn from this group of people. It sounds really bad and lame to say the good guys and the bad guys, but essentially that's it. People to emulate and learn from, people not to act like, right? And so... It may seem that obvious, but it's not always. And so from a scum point of view, it's not always that obvious. And so we aren't preaching as if it's that obvious. And it's not that obvious today either. Uh, One of the main things you could notice is Martha and Mary, this woman who was always serving God, always serving God, always serving Jesus and couldn't sit down and just hang out with him. And then Mary, who we're supposed to emulate. Oh, Mary just hangs out with Jesus and doesn't help Martha. That would be annoying. But... Basically, there's a lot to learn from both of them. They're very different, stark contrasts. We also see the stark contrast when we study um, the Good Samaritan. You have the jerks that walk by, the holy religious people that do not help. And then you have the Samaritan, the person who's not even an Israelite, not even a person of God who gives and gives and gives. So therefore, you have the person to emulate and the person not to. Oftentimes, when we're studying in the book of Luke, this crowd... You think of the crowd. It is a nameless, faceless orb, and yet it's become a character. The crowd is usually the person to emulate. Because they're good, because they're caring, because they follow Jesus, they want to hear from him, and they're open to what he has to say. They want him to heal him. They want to learn from Jesus. And then you have the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are the religious legalistic leaders, and they are not the ones to emulate because they're usually jerks and trying to catch Jesus off his guard and do, you know, they're trying to 
basically get one over on Jesus because they're so smart and high and mighty and know all the rules. But in this passage, it's tweaked. The crowd, the nameless, faceless orb of all these people that are usually these awesome people, and usually they are, are suddenly no longer the people to emulate. In this passage, they're the people to learn from. So let's look at this. Verse 29 says, As the crowd pressed in on Jesus, he said to them, This evil generation keeps asking me to show them a miraculous sign. They want proof. And how obnoxious is it that Jesus has been traveling and performing miracles? He has been healing people. He has been making crooked legs straight. He's been making mute people talk and hear. He's been feeding the 5,000. He's been doing all these miracles. But suddenly it's not enough. The crowd is saying, prove it, prove it, show a miraculous sign, and then we'll follow you. The Greek word for wicked used in this passage when he says they're a wicked generation is the word poneros, and it has a connection to having bad eyes. It can mean physically bad eyes, but it can also mean a bad, evil, worthless, wicked person. And it's hard for us to understand how that isn't harsh. Isn't that harsh of Jesus? How can he be mad at people for simply not believing? That, the audacity of that. How can they be wicked simply because they don't believe, right? How can they be bad, evil, horrible, and have bad eyes just because they don't believe? But this crowd is not merely saying, show us so we can believe. Um, the Greek word for test used in 11.16 is pyrazo, and it means to try to make a trial of, and to test. They are poking at him. The crowd is no longer satisfied being in the presence of God, seeing him, touching him, feeling him, around Jesus when he's doing these things. Now they want to control when the miracles happen. They want to say, behave like the vending machine. Do what we want. They want to say, Jesus, perform for us. Sign and wonders is something for us now, not for the benefactor of that miracle. And so now Jesus takes the chance to really give it to them. Yay. The crowd goes from being the people we're supposed to emulate to these people we can learn from. And in verse 29, Jesus gets a little cryptic, but they would have known what this means. They're Jewish people and they would have grown up with the Old Testament. They would have known this. And he says, but the only sign I will give these people is the sign of Jonah. What happened to him was a sign to the people of Nineveh that God had sent him. What happens to the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be a sign to these people that he was sent by God. Uh, the message reads it like this. On Judgment Day, the Ninevites will stand up and give evidence that will condemn this generation because when Jonah preached to them, they changed their lives. A far greater, greater preacher than Jonah is here, being Jesus, and they squabble about proofs. So now the big sign Jesus is saying is going to be the sign of Jonah. So what is the sign of Jonah? Um, the book of Jonah, if you grew up going to any sort of Sunday school, and I did not except for maybe three times a year, and that was enough in this American culture for me to hear the book of Jonah because it's everywhere, um, is very graphic, very visual. And what we usually take away from it is very, I don't know. I don't know. Tell me if you relate to this. This is how I learned the book of Jonah. There's a guy named Jonah, and he has a call from God. And God says, you must go tell these people, the Ninevites, to repent. And so Jonah doesn't want to, and he hides out in a boat. And eventually the boat gets in a big storm, 
And the people on the boat are like, who pissed off God? And Jonah eventually is like, me. And they throw him overboard. And a fish swallows him. And he's in the fish for three days until the fish vomits him out. Cut scene, end of story. Lesson for children and lesson for most people is do not piss off God or your life sucks. That's all I learned. That's really that. That's all I learned. Until a couple years ago in his love fellowship, Craig Blomberg, thank you for his seminary genius for teaching on this. I learned a lot of things. First thing that's fascinating, the Ninevites. They're brutal, bloodthirsty, gnarly people. They are the people that are the main people against the Israelites at this time. And, and God is calling Jonah not to just go tell some neighbors. It's not like you're going to go say, do you have any salt? It's like, or sugar. It's like you're going to like a crazy gnarly house that's like got, I don't know, way too, I don't want to offend anyone. If I say Halloween decorations, I'll just offend too many people. Um, but it has a, you know, a house of some people you don't want to hang out with. Too many Easter decorations? I don't know. Um, <laughs> Anyway, you don't want to go to this house. You don't want to go see these people. They're your enemies. You don't like them. And God is telling you to go to them and tell them to repent because God wants to save them. God wants to redeem them. Imagine people who have hurt you. People who have hurt people you love. People you want to see justice done to. And God is saying, those people that you want to see justice done to, go tell them to repent so that they can be in my kingdom and I can forgive them and love them. What? No, that's why Jonah doesn't want to do it. Um, Secondly, that is fascinating. This is what's crazy. The Ninevites do. They repent. A whole generation repents. I don't know how that worked, but it did. They repented and they were saved. Um, I don't know if it was one person and they kind of played the game of telephone and the word got out. I don't know if they had people teaching it in their schools or talking about in their workplaces or, you know, church services suddenly. But either way, the whole generation repented and got saved. Um, So Jesus is reminding this crowd that he's talking to, this crowd that we're talking about now in Luke, um, that he too, Jesus, is preaching for belief and repentance. Um, But he's adding to that, I'm here now, Jesus. I'm not just Jonah. Imagine Jonah's Delivery guys, he didn't even want to do it. He's probably like, um, you guys should repent and get saved because God really likes you. Peace, I'm out. <laughs> Not very convincing. Probably is what Jonah did because he's a jerk. But Jesus is doing all these miracles and preaching from him, Jesus, and these people, the Jews, still won't get saved. The audacity of their disbelief and desire to see more. That's messed up, right? That's messed up. The book of Matthew also talks about this comparison. So in Matthew 12:40, we read, For as Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, or three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So three days in the belly of a fish likened to three days in the belly of the earth. It's talking about the resurrection. The resurrection is coming, and so Jesus has an urgency to tell the people to listen up. There's a reason. He's on his way to Jerusalem to be sent to the cross, and he knows. Um, Secondly, which I also had to do a little digging, Jesus talks about the Queen of Sheba. And don't feel bad if you're like, what is going on? Like, I had to do a lot of digging. What is, I don't know much about this, so I had to look look it up. 
Queen of Sheba, as it turns out, is an awesome woman. She wants proof. She doesn't just, she's didn't grow up with the God of the Israelites. She's from very far away. She's knowledgeable. She's very wealthy and she is tenacious. So even though she's a woman, she's going to get a big caravan together and go on her own to see if what these stories are about God is true. Um, so let's read about it in first Kings 10. It's going to be behind me too. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon, Solomon here is a follower of, uh, of God and his relationship to the Lord. She came to test Solomon with hard questions, arriving at Jerusalem with a great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones. She came to Solomon and talked with him about all she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions and nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. Nice, right? When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me in wisdom and wealth. You have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord, your God, who has delighted in you and has placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain Justice and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices and precious stones. Never again were so many spices brought in as those the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Um, So essentially, Queen Sheba is a woman that gives credit where credit is due. She is a woman who, essentially, she's a pagan. She's a pagan who grew up without God. And came and saw the behavior and the beliefs and the sacred, sacred nature and ceremony that Solomon and his people had and the regard he had for his Lord. And she was touched and changed. And now here's Jesus talking to his Jewish people and he's saying, guess what? I'm comparing you to a pagan woman and you lose out. You're the less than. How do you like that? Queen of Sheba becomes the one to emulate. Jesus looks past what we see, what the culture sees as worthy and sees into the heart of a person. Um, So the second part of this that I get to preach about, which I like but is interesting too, is the part about the light. So we're going to go from looking at crowd mentality to looking at interpersonal belief. You know, it's one thing to believe when you're with the crowd, but it's another thing when you're home and you're believing on your own. So let's look at this. Receiving the light. Verse 33, uh, chapter 11. No one lights a lamp and then hides it or puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where its light can be seen by all who enter the house. Your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when it's bad, your body is filled with darkness. Make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness. 
If you're filled with light, with no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant, as though a floodlight were filling you with light. Um, so we're, we sang that song today, This Little Light of Mine, and I've preached about that before. We are used to the little light concept, one being out here, this little light of mine out here. This is my little evangelical light, and it can touch your life and your life and your life, but it keeps me nice at a distance. There's my light, Nat. It might touch you and affect you, but it's got a distance. See? So it's an evangelical thing, right? I got a cough. Hang on. <coughs> this little light of mine, my influence, my holy influence is so good, and I'm going to use it for the Lord. Hallelujah. And, yeah, that's part of it, right? So we are supposed to have a godly influence. We are supposed to. But not just that. Jesus is tweaking this, too, and he's saying, see these eyes? He's not talking about our physical eyes. He's saying, Jesus, the Holy Spirit goes within us, and we are the light. And why would we choose to put our light, our life, our beliefs, our nature, our Holy Spirit, awesome, God-given, everything beautiful about us under a basket? Why would we put the joy of Christ under a basket that exists in ourselves? He's saying, that's what you're doing, and I need you now, people, because the time is coming. There's an urgency with it. Um, Yeah, it's not necessarily a physical thing. It is a spiritual thing. We have spiritual eyes. We have spiritual ears. We have spiritual bodies. Are they filled with light for you? Do you have good eyes? The word for good eyes in this is hapless. Sorry, Ryan, if I'm pronouncing all this wrong. You know all these words. Um, It means single, simple, sincere. It means free from inner discord. Within, free from inner discord. Innocent, upright, pure. So when this idea of singleness and simpleness is applied to the physical eye, it means not having double vision, which to me means not having hypocrisy. Um, it's easy to take for granted the fact that we have the ability to bring in awesome things just by knowing people, just by seeking the Lord, just by reading the Bible, different things like that that will keep our eyes pure. I think to some degree he is talking about what we let into ourselves. I won't lie. I think he is saying some of that, you know, what you see, what you hear, what you experience on a day-to-day basis. You choose into what nourishes you. And if you let crap keep nourishing you, you will put out crap. Um, It's the way it is. It's just the way it is. Um, And Jesus is saying the reason that the Jews are doing this right now, the reason they're doing this and the way the reason that they have dark eyes is because they want control. They are impatient. They are living in doubt and fear. And I never have, so I don't understand. Actually, in sixth grade, I did this little thing. Maybe you've done this. You remember like when you're young and you kind of have a concept of God and you might have said, God, if I stop stealing the Christmas ornaments, will you make sure my parents never find out? Like like the the things are so simple when you're little. God, if I don't, um, if if my boyfriend ever finds out that I cheat on him, will you make sure that I, uh, I'll go to a youth group if you make sure my boyfriend never knows I cheat on him. Or, God, I'll go to church next week if you make sure this week the youth pastor doesn't tell my dad I didn't go when he dropped me off. Like, we have this little tit-for-tat thing with God. Like, I'll do this if you do this. God, God, if you can be under my control for a minute, I won't misbehave. God, no audacity there, right? 
And then we get mature and we stop doing those stupid little things because we realize that doesn't work. And we're mature now and we're adults. And so now we're going through life and we might be in our 20s and we might say, God, thank you for this opportunity to go for this college. I know you're calling me and I will go and I will trust you. I just need the right roommates, the right place to live. I need some financial aid. God, can you do that? If you do all this, I will do this. In my own spiritual way, God, I'm so ready to give in but I need this. And then later we realize that's just crap. You're planted for debt with God. So we're done with that. We're done with it. And we don't say those things anymore. We're like, God, I really trust my husband to start a business, but you, I need to know if it's your will. You need to confirm if it's your will through the Bible, through other people. If you confirm it, God, then I'll do it. Even though I feel called to it, even though I know it's the right thing. Dude, impatience and constantly tit for tat saying signs and wonders, signs and wonders, signs and wonders. What I want is going to help me behave and believe on my terms. God, um, I still do this. I do it. You know, it's, it's a challenge. Um, but just as Jesus reminds people to stop and he rebukes them because he loves them, he rebukes us because he loves us because it's not too late. Guess what, guys? When the, Ninev- when the Ninevites repented and got saved, some of them are old. Some of them are old people. They'd lived their lives, and it wasn't too late for them. Queen of Sheba, I don't know how old she was, but it's not too late is the whole point. You can't reach a place where it's like God writes you off and just says no, because if you ask him, he's down. He's so down. Um, Luke, verse 11, 35 through 36 says, See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is light and no part of it is dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. Guys, we cannot be light and dark. You can't go looking for your keys with your iPhone flashlight, turn it on and still be like, I don't see. Otherwise, you'd be, your eyes wouldn't work, right? Light creates light. It just does. It just is. Light is light. You cannot live in the dark and be light. You cannot live in the light and have dark. They just, they don't exist like that. So the same way, our spiritual eyes need to be light. And here's the crux of it, right? You ready for the crux of it? How we posture ourselves is the key. But this is one of those, those really bummer kind of sermons where it's like, Christians, you're all bad. You're bad. You're trying to be like God, but you're bad. You're not good enough. And how many times do I hear my friends say, I would go to church, but I'm kind of tired of them telling me how I suck. And so I don't want to go anymore because I've already heard that. And I don't really know how to change it anyway, so it's just a bummer. If we take this message out of the context of love, if we take it out of the context of grace, if we take it out of the context of grace for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters, we miss the point. Totally miss the point. It would be to- If I ended there, it would be one of those bummer sermons that says you're not good enough, go home and just feel bad. It doesn't work. God doesn't want that. The point is he wants the relationship, like he wanted the relationship with the Ninevites and with the Queen of Sheba. We don't get to hear what awesome things the Ninevites did. We don't get to hear, and the Ninevites repented and got saved, and Mary the Ninevite lady started a great children's worship series, and John the great Ninevite became an amazing interpretive dancer for the Lord. We don't hear that because he may not be as interested in what we do for him as he is in loving us and knowing us. And yet, for some of us, 
we already have a vision of, guess what? I'm going to get my life together when he calls me to something. When I know what he wants me to do, then I can get my stuff together and go do it. But until I have a reason, well, I just want to just hang with God. Boring. I don't get it. But that's exactly the whole point, right? It's not this big uphill battle. Um, no one would get a table and, and get a little two-year-old and a little seat and a little bowl of cereal and then feed the two-year-old and then say, oh, my gosh, you're making a mess. There's food on the floor. There's food on your face. I'm super disappointed. And no two-year-old has the mind to say, how embarrassing. Food is going out of my mouth and into my nose and on my foot because it's not appropriate. That's not appropriate. How much more gentle and loving is God knowing that we are still learning and still a process? He gets it. We are the two-year-old. We are learning to accept the grace and walk in it in love. And just like that two-year-old, he has every ounce of patience and love and actually adores feeding the baby as messy as it is. So this week, if you would take some time to think about um, not being a person disappointed in yourself, but we're called to be adult children of the living God, adult children of the living God, which means he loves us as adults, men and women. He requires a lot of us and he asks a lot of us, but he will help us. Um, I didn't ask for prayer, but now I think I do want prayer. So I'll be back there to pray. If anybody else wants to help me on the prayer team, that'd be awesome. Um, So let's pray now and then we'll do some worship. And if you'd like to come pray with somebody, please come back there. Father, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for every person here. Pray, Lord, that you show us how to have grace upon ourselves, Lord. And uh, I hope, I I ask God for every person here that you help us and teach us how how to get all the dark corners light again, Lord, or even light for the first time. Love you. Amen.